Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, I'll be catching up with Dennis Staunton in London to get the latest on the Tory leadership race. But first this week, we're discussing Hong Kong, where up to a million people protested at the weekend over a proposed extradition bill that its critics say would allow China to seize suspects in Hong Kong to face trial on the mainland. Peter Goff has been covering this story for us from China, and he joins me now from Chengdu. Peter, tell us about the background to this story. What is this new bill and why is it so controversial? Well, this bill came out of a a tragic murder case called the Valentine's Day murder when a 20-year-old boy and um, his girlfriend went to Taiwan and he ended up murdering her and then escaped back to Hong Kong. And the, the police finally tracked him down and he confessed to the murder. And But the, because Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong had no extradition act, um, the government then decided they had to act and had to quickly enforce one. He's currently, that that man is currently in prison on money laundering charges. He stole some of his uh, girlfriend's money. So he's in he's in prison currently, but he'll be released in over the summer. So that's why the government said it was, um, it was um, um, imperative that they introduce uh, one of these extradition laws very quickly before he's released so he can be sent back to Taiwan to face justice. And, and, and the bill then, it's not just about, uh, is it about Taiwan and China or is, is it broader than that? Well, currently, Hong Kong has extradition orders in, in place with 20 countries, including Ireland and the UK and the United States and so on. So this bill then will cover every other country on a case-by-case basis, including the mainland. When the handover uh, came, in, came into effect, they, they specifically left the mainland out of the extradition orders because... Uh, the mainland has an infamous judicial system, an opaque and sort of arbitrary system there. So they specifically left that out of those agreements. Uh, this would uh, allow agreements with any country, including mainland China, on a case-by-case basis. And the biggest, uh, I suppose, the biggest uh, uh, issue that people have with it is that the ultimate arbiter here would be the chief executive of the of Hong Kong, and that is a person who was appointed essentially by Beijing. So, in other words, uh, the courts wouldn't have the final say in deciding who might be sent uh, to the mainland for trial or not? Co- correct. The, the chief executive would have the final say. And are there any other kind of specific legal concerns about the bill? I mean, does it have the usual sort of protections about, you know, suspects wouldn't be sent for trial for certain crimes or to face the death penalty or whatever? Well, there has been some compromise on on the uh, from the side of the government where they have put in some of these caveats and they've increased it. it, it initially, it was that uh, they could be extradited for any crimes above three uh, that would carry a sentence of above three years. They've increased that to seven years, which are major crimes, and it has to have... It, it does have to have um, the same crime has to be in place in Hong Kong. So that has to, so that has so that's one compromise they have, and they do they are saying that um, there would be concerns about the death penalty, but they haven't quite clarified what exactly they would um, if they would not send somebody if the if the death penalty was was an issue. So there has been some appeasement, but it is still being uh, people say incredibly vague, and it's not. Um, it is. Uh, it, it, it could be done. Could be done an awful lot, um, sort of a, a, in a subtler way, and uh, particularly in this case with with Taiwan, for example, they, Taiwan does not want this extradition law in place. They're very very nervous about it because their um, citizens who pass through Hong Kong or who live in Hong Kong would then be susceptible to this. So they think that this case could be handled on a one-off basis. It doesn't need an extradition law like this to handle this particular case. 
So remind us then of what uh, took place on Sunday and the size of this demonstration. Well, this uh, the first reading was of this bill was, was a couple of weeks ago and that um, led to chaos in the Legislative uh, Council and there was, a, there was a fist fight and uh, some of the lawmakers were hospitalised and there was uh, many interventions after that from both both in Hong Kong and internationally from people saying that the, this 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 um, proposed amendment must be dropped. But uh, Carrie Lam and her government, the chief executive and her government, have been insistent that they're going to proceed with this. And the next reading will be uh, tomorrow in June the twelfth. So uh, the. the um, so allied forces, the pro-democratic forces, and so on, and business and business, uh, pro-business people, and so on. Different um, aspects of the government and of the community came together and organised this protest on Sunday. They had no real expectation as to what uh, what kind of numbers, uh, what kind of turnout they would have. Uh, they were hoping, I know, I remember last week for three hundred thousand people to turn up, but um, the numbers way surpassed their expectations. It was um, they they say it was in excess of uh, one one million people uh, they, that they did a specific count on. The police give a smaller estimate, but the police just uh, even by their own uh, they admit themselves. The police just take a snapshot of one moment in time. They don't they don't count all of the people who've participated over a 12 or 14 hour period. So it was a massive turnout and more than a million people. And when you put that in context of a, of a territory that has a population of 7.4 million, it's like one in seven people had turned out uh, on, um, to uh, protest this. Uh, what was unusual about it too was that it was all walks of society. It wasn't just the young students for, that we saw um, in the 2014 um, umbrella movement protests. It was uh, you, you had elderly, you had business people, you had all kinds of uh, people who would typically be on this, be on a more conservative side and would not want to be protesting against Beijing. All of the, the all walks of life were taking to the streets and protesting. And you mentioned there the umbrella movement protests of 2014, Peter. How, how would this protest stand in the in the context, say, of previous demonstrations? Is, is it the biggest that you've seen we've seen in Hong Kong since the handover uh, in 1997 from the UK back to China? I think this is obviously the it's it's very the defining the numbers and clarifying the numbers is difficult, but it, the general consensus is this is the biggest. There have been a couple of really really uh, large protests since the handover in 2003. There was one the there was one which was an anti the government was trying to introduce an anti-sedition bill which people were very fearful would be really would muzzle freedom of expression and that was uh, resolutely opposed and about 500,000 people took to the streets that time to protest that um, that was 2003. That time, you remember, it was the summer of 2003. The, the SARS uh, uh, epidemic had just passed. Um, it was a much weaker uh, Beijing at that time, both financially and politically. And so, the government at the time was uh, under Hu Jinping, Hu Jintao, who was not nearly as um, as uh, as resolute uh, and as as um, as Xi Jinping. And um, so it was a much sort of weaker administration, I think, at the time, and they capitulated uh, after a while. And uh, that bill was shelved in 2003. So that was a victory for the, the pro-Democrats at the time and gave a shot in the arm to them. But when you fast forward on 11 years to the Umbrella Movement, that was under the basic law, which the, the one country, two systems basic law, the mini constitution, there is a pledge there for u universal suffrage, but it does, did not dictate what time that would be introduced or how it would be introduced. Um, and t but in 2014, the National People's Congress in Beijing came with a solution that universal suffrage would look like, uh, what it would look like, and they presented 
what they presented was basically that they would come up with a shortlist. They would have a committee to come up with a shortlist of two candidates or perhaps three candidates. And the people of Hong Kong could pick from those two or three Beijing selected candidates. Uh, needless to say, that wasn't uh, widely uh, well received. So um, that uh, that was um, uh, was heavily sort of criticised, and re- and that was the main catalyst. There were other other um, issues too, general erosions of freedom of expression and so on. But that was the main catalyst behind the umbrella movement of 2014. That had hundreds of thousands on the streets. So that was an um, that was a spectacle that lasted 79 days, of course. Uh, so it was um, it was a much it was over a much longer period. But in the end, that movement is disintegrated. The government did not budge on that, and they kept that uh, that um, system in place. And the um, the pro democracy movement basically just uh, after seventy nine days basically just had to uh, give up, and went back, uh, and uh, went off the streets. Uh, there was a lot of disillusionment among uh, the sort of the democratic sort of parties over in this in the years since, um, and they thought that the potential to get crowds back on the street to protest in Hong Kong had basically had basically gone those days were were history but this uh, extradition bill has really seemed to provoke everyone and has um uh, sort of produced uh, produced a lot of anger and people are on this like people like I say from from all, from all aspects of society are on this were on the streets on Sunday protesting it and given Peter the authorities refusal to budge in 2014 what can we learn from that and what what does that tell us about what the response is likely to be to this latest uh, these latest demonstrations well all this all the indications coming out of Hong Kong and from Beijing in, over the last few weeks is there, w- there will not be any uh, more compromise they um it will go back to the uh, Legislative Council tomorrow. Uh, it seems to be an unprecedented uh, move that the, it, most bill, bills normally have to be read three times in, 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 the, in the Legislative Council. They're going to do the second and third reading tomorrow is the plan. Uh, so they're going to do, which is, which is normally they're done on separate days, which seems like very much um, a sort of premeditated move just to push this right through as quickly as possible. They have kind of, they have said quite several times that they... Um, they feel they have made all the compromises they can make and that they are now uh, just ready to pass this bill, which they feel is imperative they pass immediately. So it seems like... And the, the, the Legislative Council, of course, there's 70 uh, representatives in this Legislative Council. Uh, the It is 35 of them are democratically elected. 35 of them are what they call functional constituencies. So they're basically coming from different um, aspects of different business communities representing the banking sector or the finance sector or the insurance sector. And they're essentially handpicked by Beijing. So there is it is um, it is it is partially democratic, but there is no way that the sort of democratic forces could have a majority there. So they will not um, they would not be able to outvote this. Uh, so it is highly unlikely, highly unlikely that that, they, are, that um, they would be able to block it uh, going through the the legco tomorrow. Um, it may, it may not. Of course, it may take longer than one day. Nobody knows how long this will will take with the with the procedures. But uh, both Beijing and Hong Kong seem adamant it will pass. And Peter, just to wrap it up, I'd like to ask you maybe in a moment just about what the implications all of this has for for Hong Kong special status. But maybe just to remind people in the first case, when because they'll keep seeing references in this story to Hong Kong's uh, special special status. What does exactly does that mean? Um, what, what kind of protections 
is the special status supposed to uh, offer Hong Kong, which this, this status has pertained, of course, since the handover to China in 1997? Sure. So this was this was a deal that was done between Margaret Thatcher and, um, and Deng Xiaoping back, back in 1982. They started discussing this. And then in 1984, um, they signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration. And that, that gave Hong Kong special administrative region status, which allowed, um, which acknowledged that China was a socialist system, that Hong Kong had been a capitalist system, and it allowed Hong Kong to maintain its capitalist system for 50 years from 1997 up until 2047. 2047. So that meant that they could continue with their legal system, the legislative system, keep operating the monetary and fiscal control, keep their own currency and passports, also have some of the trappings of a nation state like uh, access to uh, WTO status. They would in, uh, participate in the Olympics under their own, under the Hong Kong flag and so on, and be protected under under covenants that the Hong Kong government had signed previously, like the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights and so on. So those rights and were meant to be, are, have, are enshrined in that, under that joint declaration up until 2047. So uh, most of these protests are all pointing out that this joint declaration is being is 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 being ignored um, to all intents and purposes. So, is uh, finally, Peter, is there legitimate concern then that, that China is is seeking to undermine the special status? I think that's that's basically the conclusion that most people have come to. In 2014, the the British government came to the conclusion that the declaration is now void, that it has been undermined so 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 many times that it is now just basically um, it is there for decoration is not uh, it has not been observed. Uh, Beijing, for its part, says that um, that the UK has no longer any role in in Hong Kong, so it should mind its own business. So they they don't um, have much um, have much tolerance for their input at this at this point in time. The uh, they do still, of course. I mean, despite all these, the there is still a major difference between how Hong Kong operates on a day to day basis and how the and how the mainland is. Um, now, the the obviously Hong Kong is is deeply concerned that these their freedoms will be eroded, and they will just become another mainland city. But right now, if you are there, there is freedom because the newspapers are. Uh, are you know full of lots full of critical uh, stories and so on. There's freedom of expression. The internet is not blocked. Uh, you know there is uh, some some semblance of democracy and so on. Uh, there is um, there is an independent judiciary. Uh, so those elements are still very much still in place uh, that are not um, across the border, but for sure they are being gradually um, chiselled away. You're listening to the Irish Times. Thanks to Peter Goff in China. It's to the UK now where our London editor Dennis Staunton is standing by to give us the latest news on the race to succeed Theresa May as Conservative Party leader and indeed Prime Minister. Dennis, three more candidates launched their campaigns today, Tuesday. Did anybody stand out? Uh, not really. It was very much the, um, the the second tier. And so what we've had already is Mark Harper, who was uh, is a former chief whip, uh, not really regarded as somebody who is going to make it into the final two. Andrea Letson, former leader of the House of Commons, who was in the final two, if you remember, in 2016 with Theresa May. And then she pulled out of the contest. So Theresa May uh, was elected by acclamation. And the third third one actually hasn't done it yet. That's Rory Stewart. And he's going to do his later today in uh, in a tent on the South Bank, where he's going to have a kind of a rally plus, uh, plus uh, candidate launch. Is it fair to say Rory Stewart is the candidate that everybody who's not in the Tory party would like to vote for? 
That's exactly right. And uh, and I think, you know, you know it's uh, almost nobody except Rory Stewart believes that he is likely to win this time round. But uh, if you were to imagine that the next Conservative leader or the next Prime Minister doesn't last that long and maybe it ends in tears, then Rory Stewart is positioning himself very well to be the person who comes in and says that this party needs to go in a totally different direction and this is the way it has to go. And and so I think he's run a, a very good campaign. I've, you know, nobody at Westminster thinks he's going to make it to the final two, but he certainly doesn't hasn't done himself any harm. I was disappointed, Dennis, to hear you describe Andrea Leadsom there as second tier because um, rumor has it you, you've just come from lunch with her. So did she have anything interesting to say? Well, she did. she had some uh, quite amusing things to say. In that, uh, I mean, it, it was a very funny speech. It's uh, it was the press gallery lunch, and so she had uh, you know she had lunch with the press gallery and then spoke to us afterwards, and she made a very funny speech. And at the end, she had always said that she wasn't to use the uh, the B word, uh, but uh, the B word could refer to lots of things. And as uh, as you know, uh, as uh, Commons leader, she's had a very stormy relationship with the Commons speaker, John Burko. And so she didn't use his name throughout the whole thing. But then uh, finally, at the end, she held up a little poster which said, bollocks to Burko. And uh, and so she got she got the message across. So she was she was being uh, you know she was being amusing. She was being uh, sparky, uh, but once again, she, it wasn't really the performance of somebody who you would expect to be in the final two. And I think uh, you know I think her day has gone. And uh, and it's really a question just of where you know insofar as she gets a, a few votes on Thursday, where those votes go afterwards. Of course, the other B word is um, is Boris, and Boris Johnson remains the the front runner. But it's remarkable how little we've heard from him. Do his minders intend to keep him under lock and key for the entire campaign? They're going to keep him under lock and key as much as they can, and uh, and so tomorrow he will have his launch, where there will be uh, some questions from journalists. So so there'll be some exposure tomorrow. But what he's been doing is he's been avoiding broadcast interviews. He gave an interview to the Sunday Times uh, on this week. And, uh, and and his campaign says that you'll see a bit more. But what they're doing is certainly keeping him uh, under wraps as much as possible. Now, the, uh, it'll be interesting to see how long this can last, because part of that depends to some extent on how long this part of the contest lasts. The Conservative rules are that the MPs choose two candidates and those candidates go forward to the uh, the general party membership. And there are now 10 candidates in the race. The first round of voting will be on Thursday. And there are rounds planned for another week or so. But it could be that after the results come in on Thursday, that you then get to a second round where there are much fewer candidates and that really by Tuesday evening, you really know the final two. And if he's been kept under wraps until then, there's a, a debate planned by Channel 4 on Sunday. And then there's another one uh, scheduled by the BBC on Tuesday. But he might just about avoid those and then go straight into the uh, the contest of the membership. And is it a classic case, Dennis, of, you know, the front runner often in, we see in these kind of campaigns likes to keep their head down? Or is it because, you know, his minders fear that he's particularly gaff prone? I think it's both of those things. And he certainly, you know, well, first of all, if he were to go on stage with nine other candidates, then uh, they'd all gang up on him because he's the front runner. So you've, you've already seen in some of the campaign launches so far that they've all been taking pot shots at, at him. And so there is no advantage in a way in the front runner, um, you know, uh, putting his head above the parapet, because what he really needs, or at least, the, the you know, his strategists think 
is that once he gets onto the, the ballot for the, the party members, the party members love him and they're going to vote for him anyway. It doesn't matter who he's up against. So, you know, his difficulty is getting out of the traps uh, in Parliament. And so that once he gets through this system and, and these votes here, that he'll be home and dry. There is one mystery, though, and there's one question which uh, is hanging over things. He's had a lot of public endorsements, uh, over 70 of them, I think, by now. And uh, one question which is floating around Westminster is that when you have the secret ballot on Thursday, will the private secret votes add up to the same number as the public endorsements because it's one thing you can see why certain people you know who don't necessarily admire Boris Johnson who don't agree with him on policy would decide that he's probably going to win so you might as well get your public endorsement in but the question is will those same people in the privacy of the ballot will their hand be somehow drawn uh, away from Boris Johnson's name. And so that's uh, you know, one of the things that his rivals are going to be watching. You know, will he perform as well as he's, as he's expected to perform? And then who are the, 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 you know, who are the leading candidates to oppose him? Now, one of the leading candidates up to certainly the past few days, Dennis, was Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary. And then we had the submission by him that he used cocaine several times before he entered politics about 20 years ago. How much damage has that done to his chances? I think it's done quite a lot of damage. I just a few minutes ago ran into uh, one of uh, one of Michael Gove's people. Michael Gove had just been uh, one of the first to go in before MPs in the first of two hustings uh, ahead of Tuesday of Thursday's vote, and uh, and and this uh, you know one of his advisors was saying he did very well, and they felt that uh, you know they had moved on that the press had moved on from the cocaine story. I'm not sure that's really true, and I think one of the problems is that. There's uh, you know, an accusation of hypocrisy at the time, around the time that Michael Gove says he was using cocaine. He was also writing columns in The Times saying that middle class drug users uh, you know, had an awful lot to answer for and he was condemning them. And then when he was education secretary, he introduced new uh, restrictions on teachers, which meant the teachers who used class A drugs could find themselves suspended from teaching for life. So there's the accusation that there's one rule for uh, ordinary people and there's one rule for people like him. And I think the other problem that you've got is that the attitude here in Britain to uh, recreational drug use has changed. Uh, maybe five years ago or so, it was generally or broadly regarded as a victimless crime. And so something that you could say, well, I may have done this in my youth, but I've moved on. I don't do this and I don't recommend that other people do. But what you've seen in the last couple of years here is this epidemic of knife crime in London, which a lot of which is connected with drug gangs and the uh, and very young people, children in some cases, who are being used to traffic these drugs. And Cressida Dick, who's the uh, commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, she a few months ago said that all these middle class drug users who use cocaine at the weekends, that they have blood on their hands. And so I think that the public discourse has changed in a way that's disadvantageous to Michael Gove. And I think it's probably going to be more difficult for him to shake it off. And the other thing is that if that was the only charge against him, he might be OK. But he also has the charge of treachery, the idea that he uh, stabbed Boris Johnson in the back in uh, 2016. And also for some Brexiteers that although he was a leader of the Vote Leave campaign, that because he stayed in the cabinet and he supported Theresa May's deal, that he's somehow no longer a true Brexiteer. So I think that 
All of these things together have damaged his campaign. But again, what uh, his advisers say is that uh, Boris Johnson's campaign are talking up the prospects of the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, because uh, Boris would prefer to face Jeremy Hunt. And that actually, if Gove on Thursday gets within hitting distance of Hunt, then the elimination of other candidates could see Gove getting into the final two. I think it's a long shot, but that's what they say today. Now, you mentioned there that Boris Johnson will have a campaign launch tomorrow. And presumably, if journalists do get to ask him questions, he's going to be asked this very question himself, isn't he, about his own uh, drug use in the past? Yes, his campaign referred journalists to uh, a couple of uh, rather old and obscure quotes uh, from him and somehow sometimes kind of contradictory and confusing. Uh, What he seems to have said is that maybe when he was 19 or maybe uh, at some other stage during his student years, that somebody gave him what might have been cocaine, but that instead of sniffing it, that he had sneezed. So none of it went up his nose and it was probably icing sugar anyway. So, uh, so, So that's kind of where he is. Uh, Now, I think people probably will try to press him, but I imagine that if um, Linton Crosby, who's advising him, uh, is worth any portion of his fee, he will be drilling Boris Johnson today, uh, well into the evening, about answers to all those questions. Just uh, uh, then, going back to Michael Gover, if he has lost momentum, Dennis, I'm wondering who has gained? I mean, who do you think has been having a good campaign over the past few days? Well, Jeremy Hunt has been having a very good campaign. Uh, his, uh, His campaign is very slick. It's very professional. And uh, he's had a number of important endorsements, the most important, perhaps, that of the Defence Secretary, Penny Mordaunt, who is an uh, ardent Brexiteer. Jeremy Hunt, uh, back to remain in the referendum, he's regarded with some suspicion by Brexiteers. He's regarded as a kind of a a bloodless uh, technocrat. And uh, his nickname is uh, Teresa in Trousers, uh, T-I-T, among some MPs. And so the idea that he's somehow continuity Teresa May is, uh, you know, and so so, uh, having Penny Mordaunt endorsing him was a big help. And he's presenting himself as the safe pair of hands, as a serious person. He had an advantage last week with all these D-Day commemorations where he found himself with Donald Trump and Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. And so he was able to tell people yesterday that all these world leaders had said all kinds of things to him in private, which they may or may not have said or meant. But anyway, it's all it's all it's all good for him. So he's had a good campaign. Uh, Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, had a shaky start because Sajid Javid has by far the best backstory of any of the candidates. But his original campaign video had him in his office looking a bit like a hostage video, just speaking uh, about his policies and not saying anything about the fact that his father arrived from Pakistan to Britain with a pound in his pocket and that uh, Sajid Javid grew up in, uh, you know, on the most dangerous street in Bristol and was written off by so many people, faced racism, faced poverty, went on to make an awful lot of money in banking and to uh, become a conservative politician. This morning, he released a video which said all of that and said it very beautifully. And the question now really is, has Javid come to the party too late? Or is he in a position to uh, be one of the challengers? And so if you found, for example, uh, you know, Sajid Javid, Jeremy Hunt 
and uh, Michael Gove clustered close together and perhaps with the health secretary, Matt Hancock, a bit behind. How does all that shake out in the second round of voting uh, next week? And would he have some kind of a chance? He had an important endorsement with the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davidson, who's the most popular figure in the party. And she endorsed him. That was a boost. But somehow his campaign seems to have had some difficulty in turning every advantage to their advantage. And so uh, so I, I think he's not really in Westminster seen as, uh, as likely to uh, to be in the final two. Now, Dennis, just a question about Brexit, which, of course, is the, the centre of this campaign, because obviously if Theresa May had got her Brexit deal through Parliament, we wouldn't be here now. From an Irish perspective, um, presuming one is, is, is concerned about the prospect of a no-deal Brexit and, you know, is on board with the consensus view that it's vital to keep the border backstop and so on, is there any candidate in the field we should be cheering for from this side of the Irish Sea? Well, the, uh, of those remaining in the race, uh, undoubtedly it would be uh, Rory Stewart, because what Rory Stewart says is he accepts the withdrawal agreement exactly as it is, and that it's really just a matter of persuading people in Westminster to accept it. And he says that uh, you know he's ruled out leaving without a deal. Uh, Michael Gove has said that he is not going to uh, rush out the door on October the 31st if he thinks that there is some chance of getting a deal and he'll uh, delay as long as necessary is what he says. And if you look closely at what he's demanding, uh, he actually isn't asking for the backstop to be taken out of the withdrawal agreement. And so his proposal is also a relatively realistic one. When you get over into the other side of things, Boris Johnson uh, talks rather a very tough game in terms of saying that he's not going to, uh, you know, to hand over the whole 39 billion that he, uh, you know, that Britain owes on its way out, and that he's going to, you know, we're going to escape from the intellectual prison of the backstop. But actually, again, if you look closer, uh, he's not really necessarily promising quite as much. And so, for example, some of what he's talking about about the backstop could actually be achieved while the backstop still remains. Further over on the right, Dominic Raab is threatening to suspend Parliament to push through a no-deal Brexit if necessary. Esther McVeigh is saying she's given up on trying anything except a no-deal Brexit. And so she's just going to go straight for that. And so I think that you know there's a kind of a spectrum. And uh, you know, Rory Stewart, a bit of a no-hoper, probably would be the best possible option. After that, probably Michael Gove. But Boris Johnson uh, may have some difficulty in pushing a no-deal Brexit through Parliament. And Parliament and the Speaker, John Burko, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he's, got, he's made very clear that he's going to give Parliament a say. And if Parliament wants to stop it, Parliament will be able to, I think. OK. So, Dennis, first vote on Thursday. You said, will we have the first eliminations then on Thursday night? Yes. So first vote, actually, you'll hear around lunchtime who's uh, got through. If they don't get uh, 17 votes, then they're automatically out. But I think what you'll find is that uh, quite a few of them won't reach 17 votes, so they will be out. And then others who uh, are in the 20s or the low 30s might just decide at that point to say uh, that they're going to get out of the race and throw their support behind someone else. Okay, Dennis, thank you. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.